0: this is where
1: Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. We're back. We're both back. It's been a while since we've both been back together here, Jason. Where have you been, Wheeler? Uh, Where have you been is the question. You know what? I was out more recently. You're right. Uh, I uh, retreated to cooler confines uh, over the past uh, week or 10 days. Um, Six, seven different states, all of which were way cooler than Texas. Nice. You mean temperature-wise, right? Well, yeah. I mean, what's cooler than Texas? Yeah, actually, they were cooler than Texas. They had cool mountains and valleys and all that. I I do
2: remember seeing one of your social media posts. You were in uh, South
1: Dakota up in the Black Hills yeah, Florida? South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, yeah. Utah, Idaho—all of those. Uh, and uh, boy, it's a totally. De- I was wearing sweaters.
2: Stop it, dude! Come sweaters.
1: on, sweaters. I'm not kidding you. As as we record this, it's like a hundred and two outside, and
2: it's uh, the heat index is hundred and ten, I believe.
1: It's just gross. So, you know what that is perfect for? Cold um, beer. Yeah, and especially the one I've got today. It's the Adios Pantalones, which is goodbye pants. <laughs> um, and what makes this even you know more appropriate for this is this is a Cerveza de Sesión. Do you know what that is? I don't. Go ahead and enlighten me, Mr. Español. It is a session beer, and if you're not familiar with that, that means it is lower in alcohol by volume. Uh, and you know, I guess the, the theory is that that means that you can sort of have more of them as you go uh, because it's not having you know quite the punch. But it has a dual meaning because we are talking about a session today, so it, it totally well, fits.
2: Well, let's see how mine works out. I, I have... Fallout.
1: Oh, Fallout's good. Fallout. That's appropriate the for the subject today too.
2: Manhattan Project Beer Company. I grabbed another beer out of the fridge, and I looked back there, and I saw I had Fallout. I'm like, let me grab this one because I knew you'd be on top of it. So let's talk about the fallout from what the U.S. Supreme Court has been doing. As I crack this thing open, but the U.S. Yeah. Supreme Court has has been all in the news here as they're wrapping up their their uh, their session. And a number of of rulings have come down. I believe we're expecting a few more here, but our guest is the guy we go to for for all things legal. Uh, I, I think he's going to represent me when they come to pick me up uh, for whatever <laughs> they may get me on. But but Steve Vladek is with us uh, again from the University of uh, Texas at Austin. Steve, you, you aren't in your you aren't at the university where you have the books in the background. Uh, no,
0: speaking of getting away from hot Texas, uh, we are up in Western Massachusetts, which is where we tend to, usually we go after the Supreme Court's done for the term. Um, we went a week early this year, which means I'm, I'm going to do all this fun stuff from the, the cool climbs of the Berkshires.
2: And what is, what is the, the climate there? What's the, what's the temp right now? Uh,
0: right now it's 75, um, and sunny. So, Jeez. you know, but I will say that, you know, we've been here about I don't know, six days now. And this is actually the first day it hasn't rained. So, you know, feel a little bad for me.
1: Rub,
2: rub, no, rub it it in we here. don't feel it all bad for you. And, and
1: by the way, uh, everyone who's listening, if you like to watch your podcasts instead of just listening to them, a lot of people apparently are into that. Uh, we do put these on YouTube, so you too can sit there and and look at Steve Vladek uh, there in Western Massachusetts and and just be filled with uh, envy and and maybe a little bit of anger and, and and
0: the barren the barrenness that is the walls of our of our office.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Uh, just search for Yolitics on uh, YouTube if you like watching these things instead. So, Steve, usually you wait until after the session is over. This one just, you know, and and I know that they, you know, they can take till the end of June, I guess, into even July to announce all of these opinions. But this is really dragging out. However, they have uh, the the court has dropped some some major rulings this time around. uh, And I suppose the first one we should get into is uh, on affirmative action, uh, just because, you know, that one uh, just happened. And uh, this affects a lot of people and a lot of universities here in this country. They didn't completely get rid of affirmative action, but they did, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those, you know, where the the court
0: says one thing and does the other. Um, it's actually, you know, this is a real problem when we were trying to figure out the headlines because you know, I was helping the CNN folks figure out what our, you know, immediate banner is going to be. And there's a whole, you know, everyone's watching each other. So some of the websites are like, Supreme Court ends affirmative action. Supreme Court overrules affirmative action. We went with guts. Um, we thought guts, the verb, yeah. you know, to gut was was getting more at the heart of the opinion. And what's weird about it is that the the Chief Justice's opinion for a 6-3 majority, you know, goes out of its way to not formally overrule the prior cases that had allowed racial preferences in higher education, but reconceives of them, reconstitutes them in such a way that going forward, it's going to be, you know, well nigh impossible for a university to actually have any kind of formal policy that gives a preference based on race. Um, And there are these weird caveats where the chief justice says, you know, maybe in the applicant's personal statement, they can talk about how race shaped their personal experience. Um, But of course, the university can't expressly credit that without running afoul of the majority opinion. And then he also carves out all of the service academies. Um, So, you know, I guess the the best thing that can be said is affirmative action tomorrow is not going to look anything like affirmative action yesterday um and affirmative action as we've known it for our lifetimes is dead but you know the court has not completely closed the door on ever looking at all at racial status and minority status um in evaluating an applicant and so that's going to create all kinds of questions going forward that's going to you know keep lawyers employed and everybody else banging their heads into the wall
2: And of course, affirmative action goes back to the 1960s to uh, to, to President Kennedy, and it's opened doors for, for countless numbers of minorities to, to get into college. But a lot of people have complained, conservatives have complained for decades that it just hasn't been fair. You know, fast forward 55, 60 years here, and I'm curious just how far reaching this really might be, uh, because in Texas, the, the only public university this really applies to is the University of Texas at Austin, which is the last one that still considers race. Uh, there are two private universities, Rice University in Houston, uh, Southern, Method- Southern Methodist University, SMU in, in Dallas, that considers it. But if it's not really considered that much, in, in, uh, at least in college admissions in Texas, how wide, wide-ranging is it, do you think, Steve? I,
0: I think it's wide-ranging, Jason, exactly because it's going to exacerbate the disparities um, between colleges in states like Texas and colleges in states in which it's still more widely permitted if not actually affirmatively supported. Um, and so I think we're gonna see a growing gap in the ability of private schools especially, but some public schools in blue states um, to come up with some kind of program that at least mimics some of the effects of prior race-based affirmative action policies versus what we do at UT you know, and what Rice does, et cetera the other piece of this though i mean i think this is this is a relevant part of the story you know one of the things today's decision also opens the door to is i think it opens the door to challenges to other forms of diversification initiatives Mm -hmm. um on the ground that they're not overtly about race but they're still sort of deliberately trying to create racial diversity in the class and you know that's a that's a charge that i could see someone trying to bring against UT's program, even after race is no longer expressly a variable, Um, the 10% plan, right? It's a charge you could see in other contexts. So, you know, Jason, one of my concerns about the ruling, wholly apart from what it does to race based affirmative action in the abstract, is that I think the court is also now inviting a new wave of litigation over policies that at least appear to be race neutral. and that you know the litigants might challenge on the ground that even though they
1: appear to be race neutral they were adopted for race-based reasons Professor, one thing that stood out to me just as a, a lay watcher of the Supreme Court is the the opinions that came down on this, uh, you know, the, the majority opinion, the dissenting opinions, um, and the fact that uh, Justice Sotomayor read part of her opinion from the bench. Justice Thomas, on the other side, read part of his from the bench. They were even, uh, you know, in, in the case of uh, justice Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, you know, name name call or, or not name calling, but naming another justice in in her opinion. Is that unusual uh, for that sort of uh, personal uh, thing to be going on after a case?
0: So, you know, yes and no. I mean, parts of it are unusual, parts of it are not. Um, it's not unusual in these kinds of high profile cases for the justices to get a little personal and their attacks with each other um what's unusual to me about what happened in the affirmative action cases is you know there are ways in which justice thomas and justice jackson are able to talk about the issue of race um you know from personal experience and as as members of a racial minority group that the rest of the court you know save justice sotomayor um are not and you know i think one of the remarkable things that we saw in the affirmative action cases is you know for the better part of really 30 years. Justice Thomas has been, you know, alone, has had sort of it all to himself to talk about how being, a, you know, growing up as a poor black man in the South, right, affected his upbringing and affected his his attitude. And now we have Justice Jackson, you know, clapping back and saying, that's one view of, of you know, racial segregation, of racial discrimination. But there's another view. Um, and, and I was really struck by how both direct she was in confronting Justice Thomas, Mm -hmm. and how sharp both of them were right in 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 trading barbs with each other. And you know, you mentioned Justice Thomas reading his concurrence from the bench, and Justice Sotomayor reading her dissent from the bench, you know, that's something that is not typical. Um, It is the rare case where a justice, other than the justice who writes the majority opinion, reads from the bench, I think that just underscores just how personal, um, and how momentous You know,
1: the justices understood the affirmative action ruling to be. You know, what it made me think of, too, was that this court seems to be as divided as Americans are. You know, for a long time, of course, you know, you've had dissenters, you've had the majority, et cetera, on the court, but it seems like we're seeing that spill into the public a a little bit more. uh, And you do wonder what is the personal working relationship like? Has that deteriorated, uh, you know, when we look back over decades and decades of the court?
0: Well, we've, and you know, I mean, race has always been a bit of a third rail for the court when it comes to this kind of question. Um, you know, I remember back in 2007 when, you know, the sort of the, what was then the new court with Justice Alito replacing Justice O'Connor um, effectively blocked the use of race as a tiebreaker in high school admissions in Seattle and Louisville. And, you know, Justice Breyer, who was not exactly one to throw bombs, um, read his dissent in that case, a case called Parents Involved, from the bench and actually, you know, ad-libbed a line from the bench about how never in the law have so few changed so much so quickly. Hmm. Um, So, you know, I think what that gets at is exactly your point, which is this is a topic that gets everyone's dander up and that includes the justices. And I think the question is whether we are well served by having those kinds of divisions manifest as constitutional disagreements hmm. um, as opposed to what really are I think in the main you know incredibly principled and just differently oriented policy disagreements about what is the best way forward for responding to you know the sort of lingering effects of a history of both de jure and de facto racial discrimination in this country and you know folks are not going to agree on the answer to that question that's as it should be the question is whether you know, it's better left to the political processes or whether we're better off having the Supreme Court resolve it once and for all.
2: Steve, one of our uh, producers, uh, Mike McCardle, came up with a, a pretty good question and, and brought up a point about what does this now do to historically black colleges and universities? If, if minorities don't get accepted to, to uh, these universities that, that have been carving out a place for them, do, does enrollment suddenly boost at HBCUs now? Uh, It
0: might. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that's one thing to look at, right? Are we going to see, Jason, related to that, are we going to see efforts by some universities just to expand their enrollments, whether they're an HBCU or not, so that they can just admit more applicants without screening based upon these now prohibited criteria. So, you know, I I think one of the things, everyone I think understood that whatever the Supreme Court rule in these cases was going to have profound effects for the future of undergraduate admissions across the the landscape. What I think is so exacerbating about the court's decision is that it's clear that there's a majority to limit to to excessively limit um, the use of race in admissions. But because the court doesn't go all the way to where Justice Thomas is, Jason, now we have questions. Um, And now we have sort of matters for folks to hammer out where the court I think could have perhaps provided more clarity.
2: Steve, so, I it, want to move it, on to the, oh, God, go well, Before we move on, let me let me ask one more question about this issue here. You mentioned a moment ago that, that universities might might come up with programs to to mimic affirmative action, uh, may, maybe end legacy admissions for if your parent goes there. What other types of, of things could could uh, universities do to admit these minorities that might not have gotten in otherwise, yeah. uh, and still not run afoul of the uh, of the of the court decision?
0: Well, I mean, this is right. So I think that the majority opinion leaves open the role of diversity statements um, in those contexts in which they haven't been forbidden by state law. Right. So, you know, can a university can a university say every applicant is allowed to append a diversity statement to their personal essay that talks about how their background shaped their experience? Um, And then can they rely upon that statement in making a decision? The majority opinion says yes, and then elsewhere provides analysis that suggests that that would be problematic. Um, so that's a puzzle. You know, we in Texas of course are familiar with the ten percent plan, the idea of using geographic diversity as a proxy for, you know, racial and socioeconomic diversity. That's gonna work better in some states than in others, um, you know, because of just the different ways in which folks have chosen to 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 separate themselves or or live together. Um, you know, Jason, I think we're gonna see just more efforts to find ways around this ruling that are inevitably going to be easier to implement in blue states and at schools with lots of resources, Mm -hmm. um, right? And harder to implement at schools that are in red states and that have fewer resources. And so I think that's one of the oddities of today's decisions, we're recording this on Thursday, right? one of the oddities of the affirmative action ruling is that it's going to, I think, exacerbate disparities between colleges on geographic lines and not just on sort of historical prestige lines
1: yeah, and as you mentioned just a few moments ago we can expect plenty of lawsuits uh, to continue coming out of this challenging whatever uh, universities come up with uh, from here on out uh, before we do move on to the next topic i wanted to ask you one more on this one as well because this is very personal i would imagine for you you're on the front lines you know you're you're you know not only do you you know know everything about the supreme court and the constitution uh, but you are a professor at a university you see students from all walks of life and all races how much has have they been on your mind uh, as you've been uh, digesting the Supreme Court's ruling on this? And and what do you expect to see going forward in real terms? Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to separate them. And, you know, I, I think
0: one of the best parts of my job um, is, you know, getting to meet every year a new group of diverse. And I mean that in every possible respect, um, you know, uh, entering law students, you know, I think. At the risk of being a bit of a cheerleader, I think the University of Texas has, at least for the last 25, 30 years, been a real leader when it comes to doing whatever it can to ensure that we are providing you know, educational opportunities broadly um, and trying to sort of generate as diverse a student body as we can. Um, I, I was not paid to say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my, I, what I worry about is I worry about sort of two things. In the specific context of affirmative action i worry about schools that haven't had that same historical success um Mm -hmm. and that want to be able to contribute more to diversifying you know educational opportunity but are now limited in the ways they can do that i think that's a big problem but the other piece and you know this is where i guess i get to be the anti cheerleader. um in a lot of respects when i think about you know the future of public universities in texas you know i think it's just as big a deal that the state legislature um is making it harder for us to pursue these kinds of programs right that the state legislature is you know going out of its way to prohibit dei diversity equity and inclusion practices and offices in our public universities and i actually think guys that for us the bigger short-term impact is going to come from what the state legislature did this session especially sp17 mm-hmm. than from the affirmative action ruling mm. but that's you know back to the point about how different schools are gonna experience this ruling differently based upon their geographic and political circumstances.
2: Well, good segue there because I want to ask you about another issue, which I'm sure, which is where Wheeler was going to go next. Conservatives obviously elated at, at uh, what happened today with gutting affirmative action. They've been trying to do it for for decades, as we all know. Uh, but let's talk about the uh, the the ruling on the independent legislature theory. Uh, explain to we've talked about this before, but explain to our listeners and our viewers exactly what that is and why it's such a big deal that that this conservative court went the other way and kind of sided with, uh, with with the liberal idea on this.
0: So, you know, this is an argument that was first, you know, brought into the mainstream in the litigation over the 2000 election in Florida. Um, and it shows up in Chief Justice Rehnquist concurrence in Bush versus Gore. And, and guys, the basic gist is to rely upon two different constitutional provisions, both of which give to the legislature of a state um, control over federal elections. So there's a provision in article one that says the time, place and manner of federal elections shall be set by the legislature of the state. Um, There's a provision in article two that says the president shall be elected by electors who shall be selected by whatever manner the legislature shall provide. Um, The question these cases raise is whether when the constitution refers to the legislature, it means the legislature to the exclusion of the state courts. And so in practice, if a state legislature says, here's our rule for this congressional election and the state Supreme Court says actually no, that violates the state constitution, um, does that state Supreme Court ruling actually violate the federal constitution by taking away from the legislature the last word, right? That's the independent state legislature theory. And what is remarkable about the Supreme Court's decision in Moore versus Harper um, is that the court Put the kibosh on the broadest version of the theory, um, right? The notion that the legislature is always the exclusive dominant force when it comes to creating rules for federal elections. The court said no, that's not true. But then the court, like quite overtly, refused to say, um, you know, when there will be, like, when state legislatures actually are allowed to go last, right? So the instead of saying the state supreme court can always override the state legislature the supreme court said state supreme courts can usually (laughs) enforce state constitutions against their state legislatures but they can't go crazy um Mm. and the chief justice's opinion guys I, i love this because it's so transparently um i don't know transparent Right. The chief's opinion literally says we do not identify where the line is (laughs) like we are not saying here's the point past which the state court cannot go. We're just saying that the line exists and it's a thing. Um, So this
1: is going to lead to more lawsuits, too, isn't it?
0: And and what's worse than that is it's not just more lawsuits, but guys, lawsuits that, unlike this one, right, are going to come up in the throes of an election where, Mm -hmm. you know, the last thing we're going to want is the potential chaos. Uh, And we saw this in 2020, you know, some of the more extreme arguments in support of President Trump was tied, at least in some way, shape or form, to this theory. So, you know, the sort of the headline that the court rejected the extreme version of the theory is correct. But in the process, the court sort of left open a um, soft version of the theory Right. For in extremist cases without telling us what makes a case in extremists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have to say, like, from a, from the perspective of like stability in the law and avoiding chaos in the next election cycle, it's actually, I think, not nearly as benign a result
1: or benign a ruling as as it could have and should have been. Well, even though they didn't totally shut the door on this, though, uh, I have you know, seen others who said that this is you know, the biggest federalism case in a long time, if not mm-hmm. ever, one of the biggest cases uh, for democracy. Is, is, that too, is that too extraordinary? Is that too extreme? How important is this case? Was this the most important case this session?
0: You know, it's fun. It's such a good question. It really depends on what your baseline is, right? If the question is, what could the Supreme Court have done? Like, how much worse could it have been? Um, yes. I mean, in this case, it, the fact that the Supreme Court did not endorse the crazy version of the independent state legislature theory is great for democracy. It's really important. It would have been the most important ruling of the term if they had. Um, but I guess guys the question is, do we really give out participation trophies to the Supreme Court? Like, hey, congratulations, you didn't blow up the country today. Um and, and I think, you know, we've we've become so conditioned to sort of be worried about the role the Supreme Court can have and and just how far the court can go that when the court doesn't happen to go there, we feel relief. But if you actually step back for a second, what the court did in Moore versus Harper is it actually for the first time turn, you know, the chief justice's concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore into the law of the land um, and Mm. said, hey, there are gonna be circumstances where the federal courts are going to be allowed to tell state courts that they're not allowed to enforce the state constitution against the state legislature. Um, Mm. That's a remarkable holding. And I just think that like, you know, the court could, the court could have made things so much, so much, so much worse. Um, but this is not exactly good.
2: It's a good point. And for our listeners and our viewers who are on kind of the periphery of all this and maybe read headlines as they scroll through uh, social media, it, 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 you know, there was a lot of concern at the end of the Trump administration that, that Trump loaded the court with conservatives and uh, those conservatives are going to run roughshod over liberal ideas and moderate issues. But have we have we really seen that? So, you know, just it's a great question.
0: I I think the short version is. um, It depends. Again, it depends on the baseline. Right. Um, So, you know, I think what we've one of the things we've seen this term is a bit of a split between Thomas Alito and Gorsuch on one hand and the chief justice and Rob and Barrett and Kavanaugh on the other. Um, You might sort of call that like the, you know, the sort of the Trump Republican mindset versus the Bush Republican mindset. Um, even though, of course, Thomas and Alito were not Trump appointees, but still. Um, And and I think we've seen a number of cases where the daylight between those two camps has come through. Um, Not necessarily the highest profile cases, but you know, there were a couple of rulings earlier this week and last week, um, about the Texas's lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's immigration enforcement priorities, about Texas's challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Where we saw, you know, Barrett and Kavanaugh and the Chief actually go with the Democratic appointees. So I guess you know the way I look at it is there's clearly now a majority of justices who are deeply in line with what I would have thought, and you know what I sort of grew up learning of as mainstream Republican political and legal ideology, circa 2000 um, or 2005, right? Circa the Bush administration, and where there's a gap right, between the justices themselves and between the justices and the lower courts is on the more recent stuff, um, right, is on sort of the more aggressive pushes to toward deregulation, right, the more aggressive pushes toward um, the ability of states to challenge any federal policy under the sun. And, and guess, if,
2: yeah. go ahead, well, if this term is any indication, yeah. what does that say about the future, do you think? Um, You know, I think it says that that the Supreme Court
0: is still the most conservative court we've seen in our lifetimes, but it's not as conservative as some of the, you know, most most right-leading judges who President Trump appointed. Um, I I think, right, it's not as conservative as the Fifth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court that covers Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. The Fifth Circuit actually has a really bad track record at the court this term. They've lost six of the eight cases that went up. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. Jason, I think what it says is like, we've got a really conservative court, but not necessarily a, you know, nothing matters except hashtag winning court. Um, And, you know, that's, I guess, again, back to participation trophies, right? Reassuring that there's not a majority for nothing matters except hashtag winning, but that still means a pretty big shift in the direction of American constitutional law, you know, for the near future.
1: Before we go to the next topic, uh, Professor, I, I want to ask you, uh, pull on that thread about the Fifth Circuit losing uh, the vast majority of cases uh, in this term that it had decided that went before the high court. Does that, uh, in your experience, does that chasten a, a circuit court? Does it change how they do business going forward, or do they just can keep on rolling?
0: So I, I think, it, you know, circuit courts are they, not its, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. I think there are going to be some judges on the Court of Appeals Who look at that and say oh maybe we've been a little bit too aggressive and i think there are going to be some who are going to have the attitude that was you know famously attributed to um, the late ninth circuit judge stephen reinhardt they can't reverse me all the time Um, (laughs) right but so so you know i i don't know that it's going to sort of rein in the fifth circuit one of the things that's different about the fifth circuit's track record this term versus prior terms where it's been notable how bad like the sixth circuit or the ninth circuit did is no one on the court has called them out specifically or overtly whereas we've seen that with other courts before so you know i i don't think the fifth circuit is going to wake up tomorrow and say oh boy we've been overdoing it um but i do think it's an important reminder that you know the just because litigants can find a friendly district judge in texas just because the fifth circuit might you know allow a outlier type of ruling to remain in effect, like Judge Kazmarek's ruling in the Mifepristone case, doesn't mean it's gonna survive with this court, even with its composition, even with this
1: solid six justice conservative majority. And again, just for people who you know don't pay constant attention to this stuff, especially like you do, uh, the Fifth <laughs> Circuit uh, is a very important thing here in Texas because that is the circuit that hears these you know cases that are appealed that are decided here in Texas, and many of them, uh, you know, even if they go away that somebody doesn't like, don't end up before the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court doesn't choose to pick them up. So th- yep. their their word in a lot of cases is is the final word. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the federal appeals courts have the last word. In you know well over ninety percent of cases in the federal courts, um, mm. and you know a, a lot of that's not controversial, right? But you know some of that is, and it just goes to how we talk about the Supreme Court a lot, understandably, but the courts of appeals can often be just as important. Mm.
2: And before Wheeler hops into his next issue, I want to ask you about one you mentioned as well, and that's the uh, Supreme Court decision uh, in favor of, of Joe Biden being able to uh, arrest and deport who he wants, kind of when he wants. Uh, How surprising was that to you? Because the the, the dissent, I believe, was, you know, a a single dissent. It was an eight to one decision, I believe. And and the dissent was, uh, was it Alito saying that, you know, the expansion of presidential powers is is going through the roof, something like that? Yeah, it's funny
0: how how people's views change depending upon who's in the White House. Um, Hmm. So, you know, I was not surprised, Jason, only because... um, The way the oral argument went in this case, I think, was very sort of suggestive of this result. Um, You know, it's important to note the court did not say that the Biden administration enforcement priorities were all were fine. um, Right. What the court said was that Texas can't challenge them, that Texas Mm. and Louisiana lacked what we call standing um, right to bring this case in the first place. And, you know, that's both a smaller ruling and a bigger one. because I mean, as you guys know, you know, Texas as a litigant, Ken Paxton, you know, before he was impeached, um, has been incredibly aggressive in it, basically leading the charge against any number of Biden administration policies. Yeah. Um, and the way that Texas has been able to do that back to the Fifth Circuit is because the Fifth Circuit has as generous a set of rules for when a state can challenge a federal policy as any court in the country. Hmm. So it's actually relatively easier for Texas to challenge a federal policy in Texas than for California to challenge it in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jason, one of the important things to me about the decision in the um, aptly, but unhelpfully named US versus Texas, um, is that you know the court pushed back on this theory of standing. The court said, hey, you know, Texas, you don't have standing to challenge these in- enforcement orders because they're not affecting you, um, right? Or if they're affecting you, they're affecting you only incidentally and only in the ways that it affects any other state. Um, you know I'm we as we're recording this we haven't yet seen how the court handles the student loan cases but you know I'll be interested to see if the same skepticism of state standing um, dooms the challenges to the student loan cases because the big suit in that case is by six red states led by Nebraska and Missouri Um, Mm -hmm. and Jason to me that's a big deal not because it leaves in place this one particular immigration policy Um, But because it really suggests that lower courts, especially, again, lower courts in the Fifth Circuit, have been too willing to let Texas be the sort of the challenger of the day um, to all these policies, maybe in ways that are going to make it harder for Texas to be the plaintiff in all these cases going forward.
1: Let's talk about one more case, uh, and, and this one didn't go down to the wire to the last minute, and, and it actually came in before you uh, decamped uh, there to Massachusetts, and that is uh, section two of the Voting Rights Act, uh, surviving uh, in that Alabama case, uh, where uh, what, what the maps were redrawn, um, and uh, this could have uh, some significance here in Texas, couldn't it?
0: It sure could, I mean, so this one, I, I think this is probably one of the biggest surprises of the term, um, so this was a case about you know the congressional district maps that Alabama drew after the 2020 census. Um, Alabama has seven seats in the US House and the map that Alabama legislature initially drew had one seat out of the seven that was a so-called majority minority district, even though Alabama's population is 27% black, even though if you were gonna do the math, you would think that would lend itself to two majority minority districts. Um, what's so revealing about this case is You know the lower courts in this case blocked the map and said actually under the voting rights act as interpreted by the supreme court in a 1986 case called gingles um i i I love that case name um right the lower court said this actually violates the vra hey alabama you have to redraw your map um and a similar decision happened in louisiana similar decision in georgia and the supreme court guys as you know last year um issued an unsigned unexplained emergency order freezing those lower court rulings and allowing those states to use those maps in the 2022 midterm cycle. Well, mm-hmm. it's remarkable now that the court says actually are bad, right? <laughs> the, those lower courts were right. These maps are unlawful, because what that suggests is that the you know these seats in the current Congress were actually drawn unlawfully. Um, and if you do the math, you can actually get pretty close to democratic control of the House of Representatives if mm. the court had not intervened that way last spring. So it's surprising in two respects. One, it's surprising that this court would actually stand by one of its precedents when it comes to the Voting Rights Act, when it's been so hostile to the VRA in other contexts. Instead here, Chief Justice Roberts for a five justice majority reaffirmed Gingles and the test for when you have to have majority minority districts. But two, it's remarkable because you know last year, it was a different five-four majority that let Alabama use this map. And the only justice guys who's in different places in the two orders is Justice Kavanaugh, um, who does not explain his change of heart, right? Who does not explain what changed between time one and time two. Hmm. And so that's revealing to me both as an example of how important those emergency rulings can be, even when they're not explained, um, and of how they're not necessarily predictive, right? Of where the courts going up on the merits in ways that now, as Jason, as you alluded to, um, is going to potentially empower enable additional challenges to congressional maps in Texas um in Ohio you know in other especially red states um, where there really have been, I think, concerted efforts to minimize the electoral power of minority
1: groups, and that challenge has already been underway here in Texas. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, how long is it going to take, though, even with this ruling, uh, for that to to come to a head as far as the case that's been moving forward here in Texas? And on and, that?
0: and back to the Fifth Circuit, you know, what's the Fifth Circuit going to, you know, how 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 in a hurry is the Fifth Circuit going to be to, you know, extend that precedent into Texas? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I think we've already seen. I think it's the the Cook Political Report has already changed its ratings for seven House seats in the next cycle, just based on this decision, um, because of its projections of how maps are gonna have to be redrawn. If anything, guys, I think that's undercounting it. Um, You know, I think there's a very good chance that reactions to this decision, if not in Texas, then at least in other states, could go a long way toward helping Democrats reclaim a majority of the House in 2024, um, which just goes back to the point about how big a deal it was that the Supreme Court intervened last term to allow these states to use these maps in the 2022 cycle,
2: Steve, I'm just thinking about something you said a moment ago um, to, to one of the questions, and and uh, the question was something about how whether the, you know, the Supreme Court has kind of put the Fifth Circuit in its place by by just you know ruling against them so much. D- does this mean that, that Texas will likely? Uh, I don't know if Texas will file less lawsuits against federal the federal government, but but Texas might have less of a shot at going at the federal government.
0: Maybe. Um, Or at least, Jason, that we'll see fewer cases where Texas is out on an island, um, right, and and sort of, you know, sort of a one state band and pushing back. I mean, I I think it remains to be seen. And frankly, again, I think, you know, the student loan cases that will be out by the time folks are listening to this will have more to say about this because either the court is going to go even further in reining in the ability of states to challenge federal policies in the um, Nebraska versus Biden case. or they're going to distinguish it and say actually here's the blueprint for how you do it jason i think that that's going to have a lot to say about how aggressive texas is going forward and how much the lower courts in texas in the fifth circuit you know allow texas to, to to pursue those challenges
1: I want to ask you about something that's just been boiling beneath the surface of this particular uh, Supreme Court session, and that is um, the the ethics uh, and all of these reports that have come out, particularly about uh, Justices Alito and Thomas accepting gifts over the years. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of folks saying, hey, you know, all of the justices, uh, the judges below you in the court systems in this country have a set of ethics and have to uh, adhere to a certain set of rules. And it seems like uh, you don't, and yet you're just sort of policing yourselves and and critics say you're not doing a good job of policing yourselves I know that you've been you know very outspoken about this and I saw a tweet the other day where you said that you've just been mortified uh, by the reactions that you've gotten just by even raising the issue of you know imposing a code of ethics on this nation's highest court these people are you know in their positions for life well, and, and I think, guys, this goes back to, to me, what is the, the biggest theme of
0: the term, which is not about any of these merits rulings. Um, if you look at what makes the current court different from its predecessors, it really is not any of these decisions. Um, it's not a conservative majority. We've had that at various points in the past. It really is more more holistically, um, the sort of general lack of accountability, the extent to which the court is not beholden to Congress and doesn't think it ought to be beholden to Congress. Or to precedence really is, in some cases it's right and and mm. and you know that guys i mean that's a departure from historical I mean, for the first 200 years you know there was this ongoing back and forth dynamic where congress would use various tools to exert leverage over the court when the court was you know in congress's view getting too far out of line from what congress thought it should be doing congress would cancel a term congress would take cases off the docket you know mm. congress controlled where the justices sat Congress made the justices ride around the country for a hundred and some odd years, right? I mean, so we've gotten away from that in the last 35 years. And I think a big part of the, you know, the, the, the broader disease that all of these little data points are symptoms of, including the ethics kerfuffles, is just the, the notion that the court is not just independent, but you know, unaccountable to the other branches to a degree we haven't seen before. And it, frankly guys, to a degree that I think is unhealthy. Um, and so for me, you know, part of the question is whether you like the bottom lines of these rulings or not, can't we all at least agree that there ought to be a stronger dynamic where the court is one of three branches in our federal system and not the dominant one um, and where there are mechanisms by which you know, the people can actually exert leverage over the justices when we believe that they're acting inappropriately. That, I think, is a conversation we have to have. It's hard to have in the moment, right, when these big decisions are coming down, It's all everyone wants to talk about.
2: Steve, what would have to happen, though, for for that to actually be implemented, for for Congress to do something? I mean, Congress has to pass a law.
0: Um, And, you know, I mean, Jason, Congress has a lot of tools at its disposal. Congress controls the court's budget. Other than the justice's salaries. Um, Congress controls the court's docket. It's just, you know, given control of that to the court. Congress could take some of that back. So Jason, I think it's about changing the political dynamic where, you know, we I, I, I don't mean we as in the three of us, but like we as in you know those folks who care about the court, um, push Congress, Republicans, and Democrats alike to think that it's part of Congress's job to exert institutional authority over the court. Not because we want the court to behave differently in particular cases, but because we want the court to be part of our system and not aloof from it. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a conversation that I hope we can keep having as we turn toward, you know, the cases that the
1: court will take mm-hmm. next term. Steve, we can't let you go today without giving you the opportunity to give a shameless plug. We should have done this in the beginning for Shadow Docket, uh, your your new book. I believe it's a bestseller uh, pretty quickly too, isn't it? Uh, that's what they tell me. Okay, congratulations, man. Uh, Tell us about buying all those copies with my with my political action committee really worked out (laughs) well for me. Hey, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Tell us a little bit about that. And and for people who, you know, that they might think, oh, shadow docket, I don't know anything about that. You know, it's how easy of a read it is.
0: I mean, so listen, I wrote I wrote it for, you know, I mean, I wrote it for my mom, but I wrote it for, you know, non lawyers who want to know more about the court. And it's, you know, a lot of it is history. A lot of it is sort of putting the current court in context. And it's a book that is really designed to help, exactly to our last, you know, the last question. It's a book that's really designed to help folks understand the court more holistically. How did the Supreme Court come to play such a big role in our lives? How much of this is new? When did things change? You know, and what is it specifically about the current court that's so problematic? You know, even though everyone knows my politics, I'm a a progressive, I don't think the problem is, you know, decisions like Dobbs or the affirmative action case or Bruin, right, I think the problem is the broader accountability gap and understanding how we got to that point, understanding why we got to that point, understanding why that point is a, why this is a bad place to be in, whether you like what the court is doing or not, um, is the goal of the book and I hope folks will, will check it out. And folks can find the book where Amazon, Amazon uh, Bookshop dot org, um, tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. If you really need a a, a more specific pin, um, but
2: uh, <laughs> available where fine books are sold. And, and, and my less my where fine books are sold. Hey, but before we let you go, uh, I, I do want to ask you about the uh, the Ken Paxton impeachment, since Paxton has been at the center of of, of you know all lawsuits filed in Texas. Uh, against the federal government are, are you watching this and, and what do you think happens in the impeachment trial because it, it's it's mired in politics it's steeped in politics with yeah. the senate being the jurors uh w- what happens when when uh, this goes to trial in september
0: i mean you guys are be- i should ask you guys that question because i don't know man me. we're asking
2: you i have no idea i don't know
0: <laughs> um all i can say is you know color me skeptical That the Republicans in the Texas House and Senate woke up one day and realized that Ken Paxton is Ken Paxton. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, what's going to happen when the trial takes place? I think that's really, that goes more toward why is it now that the Republican controlled House and Republican controlled Senate are going after Paxton and who's behind it? Um, And if you guys know the answer to that, man, um, we have this podcast totally backwards. I should be interviewing
2: you. (laughs) We'll write a book about it. There you go. Uh, well, the shadow well, impeachment
1: last last, last <laughs> little piece yeah, shadow impeachment last little piece on that though when we were speaking with the attorneys who are handling the case on behalf of the Texas House they were. They sort of let it slip that you know the investigating committee there in the House that has you know pulled up all of this investigative material on Paxton has been you know in touch back and forth with federal investigators who of course have been looking into Paxton for uh, some allegations while he was in office. Do you think that the feds? I mean, a lot of people have wondered what has taken the feds so long to to bring a case if they're going to bring a case right. here. Does this open the door a little bit when you start to see movement? with impeachment and and with his other case on securities fraud, is it possible that we see some momentum build there?
0: You know, it's certainly possible. It could be also that it's actually developments in the federal case that pushed, you know, folks in the Texas House to get moving finally after all this time. Uh, All I can say is I, I, I suspect that a year from now, we will have a better sense of why this happened now um, I just remain very skeptical that it's because one day everyone woke up and realized who Ken Paxton was. Um, you know, seems to me that this is about something that is at once more personal um, and perhaps more uh, problematic for Texas Republicans in the long term, if they continue to have Paxton as the sort of, you know, leading, leading sort of figure in that party. Um,
1: but, but what that is, we can only speculate. Okay, so you say we may know more a year from now. We're going to set a date to uh, rejoin <laughs> you a year from now. You, you know, maybe we can all be there in Western Massachusetts together I love for it. that one. We,
0: we have beer up here, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Steve, thank <laughs> you so much, as always. Uh, always great to pick your brain on all of these topics. Um, it's great to be with both of you guys. Talk to you soon. Have a great summer. Thanks, you too.